All right. Uh, wow, where are we? We're somewhere in our discussion of the rapture of the church, talking about the pre-tribulation rapture. If you have not been with us, you're gonna find us several points in on what was intended to be one teaching, but now has turned into many. And that's cool. And I remind you that um, I'm taking my time because there's just, there's just so much, but we are building here an understanding of the rapture, and so some of the questions that are raised, even in the teaching, hopefully by the time we're all done, will be, will be answered. You will understand, you'll see from a biblical perspective. Sometimes we'll ask a question in one passage and then find the answer in another, and I think that will happen. But I wanna begin tonight, before we head on to the next point, and, and here's the problem with, with breaking it up, is we break it up and then every single teaching there's more that I'm adding to it. So if you recall the first Wednesday night that we met and began to discuss these things, um, I told you I had like 18 pages of notes to get through, and I think I'm now up to about 27, so it just, they just keep adding. So you're getting a little more every night, and, and by the time we're done, you will have much more than if we had just done in one night. I'm also gonna try and break in time to have some question and answer time if you have any questions raised by tonight's study or gen generic questions about the rapture of the church, the being caught up. If, you don't even, if you're with us the first time tonight, you're going, what in the world are they talking about? Well, we'll try and bring you up to speed as best as possible. Um, but if you have any questions, we'll, we'll take some uh, Q&A time at the end. But I'm gonna start by asking you a question. And I'd like you to go ahead and blurt out answers if you feel like it. Why does God pour out his wrath on this world? So we've talked about that the tribulation is coming, that the Bible has gone all the way back to the, you know, uh, Enoch following Adam, all the way back in that seventh generation from Adam that Enoch prophesied the coming of Jesus and the pouring out of wrath, that there, there is going to be a, a time of, of judgment and throughout the scriptures uh, we have heard about, learned about the day of the Lord uh, and all of this that, that points to and talks about this tribulation period. And so my question to you is why does God pour out his wrath on this world at that time? Israel. One last chance to get people's attention. Seems like a, a rough way to do it, but I'll tell you what, there are times my kids need a swat. <laughs> Child abuser! No, I'm, when they were little. And it was just, let me help you to your room, daughter. You know, whatever it takes, son. Other, so, yeah, um, but it, it, it truly is, and remarkable, it is a, a final chance for people to wake up and, and recognize that they have, missed Jesus, and salvation is still being offered, which is amazing. And with Israel, we'll talk more about that. Some of you are like, Israel? The tribulation is for Israel? Well, it is called the day of Jacob's, or the time of Jacob's distress. So we'll talk much more about that even than tonight, but more in a few minutes. Yeah, Joel. To protect the elect. Okay, who are the elect? The remnant of Israel here on the earth during the tribulation, you sure about that? Give me a good nod because you should be, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Why, anybody else, why does God pour out his wrath? I mean, have you ever just stopped and thought about that? He has decreed a period of time during which he will pour out wrath on this earth. Why? Disobedience, Disobedience a Christ-rejecting world. 
he's held off for long enough. He said he would. And he said he would. Let's put all of that together. Yeah, Marie. And that fits the same thing. He is a just God, and this is a Christ-rejecting world. And we need to understand that very clearly. God pours out his wrath because of the rejection of his grace, which we have spent all of history receiving. And he has waited, I think, long enough too. But, but you know, I, we have a heart of compassion toward all people and love for those who are lost and love for the sinner because that's our people, right? That's where we came from. That's what we were before Christ. And we still, all of us, recognize that we struggle with sin. The only reason I can say I'm no longer in the camp of the sinners is because I have been covered by the blood of Jesus who washes my sin clean. But he pours out his wrath on this world because it's wrath for a rejection of grace. But we need to understand something with that because even that can just sound like, well, oh, okay, so we won't accept his grace, so he's just gonna punish us for it. Well, listen, the lens we used to view scripture, what uh, Bible scholars call our hermeneutic, what, what we use when we look at scripture and, we, and we, we, everybody interprets scripture. Now, I believe there's one interpretation and many applications, but people will interpret scripture differently. You know this. Some will say, well, no, this passage means this, and others will say this passage means that. And they're kind of coming up with their own interpretation. Why is it different? Because of a different view when you come to the scriptures. We all have a view of the Bible. My view, and many of yours, if not all of yours, is that the Bible is the literal word of God. He says what he means, and he means what he says. And so the simplistic view is that it is a literal view, unless in the Bible God says otherwise, unless Jesus says, let me tell you a parable, which is, has a literal understanding, but it's, it's a story or a picture laid alongside a truth, right? So we have a hermeneutic, and our hermeneutic will always shade or impact our perspective, our interpretation of Scripture. So let me ask you another fundamental question. Following up on why does God pour out his wrath on this world, is the purpose of God's creation the salvation of humanity or the glory of God? <laughs> it is both, but it is only the salvation of humanity for the glory of God. And one of the hermeneutics out there in the church today, and forgive me, I, I, I took allergy medication earlier, so my mouth's very dry, but uh, in the world, in the church today, there are those who say it is the salvation of humanity, and they lift, it is a, what we would call an anthropocentric view of the scriptures, the scriptures are there for me. God came for me. God did what he did for me. And my answer to you is no, he did not. Praise God, we're caught up in the program. But this is about the glory of God. A human-centered, even, listen to me, even a Christian-centered worldview, rather than a Christ-centered worldview, will always lead to false conclusions. There are a lot of Christian-centered worldviews out there. But if we assume, and I have a Christian worldview, don't misunderstand, but if we come to the Bible and, it is, and say it's Christian-centered, then we throw out Israel. In fact, we start to believe in things like preterism or replacement theology or kingdom now 
theology, which is also called dominionism, which says we are in the kingdom, we're gonna conquer the world as the church and hand it over to Jesus on a silver platter. That is a Christian-centered view of the scriptures. Rather than a Christ-centered view of the scriptures, a Christ-centered view is always bigger. And by the way, yes, and I don't mean any offense by this, so please don't take it if you fall into any of these camps, but I think a mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, or post-tribulation view of the rapture is a Christian-centered view rather than a Christ-centered view. Along with the popular um, missional belief, there's another view that I disagree with, that we must first, we must first, the church must, Christians must first preach the gospel to the whole world for the end to come. I don't agree with that because Jesus didn't say that. What Jesus said was, the gospel shall be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. He didn't say you'd do it. He didn't say that I would and that doesn't mean that we're not to. In fact, I am a, a strong believer in the Great Commission, that's why I do what I do, that we are to go and make disciples of all the nations, right? That's our calling. But the gospel doesn't depend on me to bring it. God invites me to bring it. God includes me in the program, which is mind-boggling. Why would he even let me in on this? But I get to be part of it. You get to be part of it but it's not depending on you for it to come to final conclusion. If you think it depends on you, that is an anthropo or even a Christian-centric view rather than a Christ-centric view which says Jesus is gonna do it. With or without me, Jesus is gonna see this all the way through. Open your Bibles up to, Matt. well, no, don't do that yet. We're gonna be in Matthew 24 in just a minute. We're gonna go first to Ephesians chapter three. So if you wanna go to both places, you can do that, Matthew 24 and Ephesians three. But while you're turning there, we've been in Matthew 24. In fact, we spent last Wednesday night primarily in Matthew 24 after we kind of went over some other things and, and looked at some other questions, but stayed mainly in Matthew 24, walked through that together. Matthew 24 and 25 are not primarily about the church. Now, yes, there are implications for us. There are warnings to heed. There are things that we can apply to us and should apply to us, but I'll give you one example. In Matthew 25, the parable of the bridesmaids or the, or the virgins, it's not about the church. We're not the bridesmaid, we're the bride. Yeah, well, Rick, it's just a different teaching. No, Jesus and his word are consistent with pictures and types throughout the scriptures. And once the church was called the bride, the church is called the bride throughout. We are not the bridesmaid waiting to be the bride. And that parable is about the bridesmaids. Well, who would that be, Doug? Israel. Israel. And that's another study for another time. But, but what I'm saying, while there are implications for all of us and warnings to heed, Matthew 24 and 25 are, are primarily about what Jesus, what God is doing in Israel and what he will do in Israel at the end of the age. And as we looked at last week in Matthew 24, Jesus was answering three questions by his Jewish disciples from a Jewish perspective. Yes, there is a chronology that affects the entire world, but he's answering his Jewish boys about the Jewish kingdom, about what's coming. And so we looked at it that way, and, and, and again, yes, 
there's a clear chronology of the disciples' questions. There's an explanation of birth pangs. We talk a lot about the birth pangs. We see them happening in our world right now getting more intense, becoming more frequent. Yes, there's the mega sign of the end of the age. In Matthew 24, 32, that is the fig tree, Israel, again. Well, you take Israel out of any of this, you're not gonna understand it. And you will end up with a perhaps church-centered view that casts out Israel and tries to work it all into us and what we're about and what we're doing, and we miss what Jesus is saying. Yes, Jesus calls his servants to watch and be ready for his return, even describing that mysterious paralambano, let's use the word at communion, paralambano, to be received unto, and he uses that language in verses 40 and 41, that word that means taken. One will be taken, one will be left, but it's one will be received and one will be left. So it's not even something we do. You realize that? The rapture of the church isn't something we do. It's not something we generate. Otherwise, we would be working on trampolines and bungee cords and all kinds of things just to get some, some lift. It's what he does. Because the word of God is Christocentric. It's Jesus-centered. Look at Ephesians chapter three and verse eight. If you've never heard this, we've looked at this before. This is one of the biggest things I think that Paul ever said. He says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration or the organization of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God may, might now be made known through the church, not to the church, through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord and in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. This is amazing. What Paul is unveiling here, what he calls the mystery which is fulfilled, it's, it's God's grace. It's the grace of God that was mysterious through the ages and even eternally before. It was mysterious even to angels and, and to the rulers and to those authorities in the heavenly places, they did not understand the grace of God. They couldn't because they'd never fully experienced it. What do you mean? They had never been put in the position where it's like, I'm gonna put you here and I'm going to show you my love, but you're gonna choose or reject. That's your call. And so in the heavenly places, and I've said this before, we in the church, and that is all people who are being saved by Jesus, we are the teaching tool of God for, for the heavenly beings. So it's not all about us. Well, I really thought it was. It's all about the glory of God. It is all about the revelation of his nature, of his character, of his grace, his chesed in the Hebrew, that loving kindness that was mysterious, that was not fully understood. The glory of God, this teaching goes way beyond humanity and it goes to heavenly beings and yet, you know what's wonderful? It still impacts you and me. 
on a very intimate, personal level because in Jesus, while God is doing all of this, in Jesus Christ, we have boldness and confident access to him through faith. It is personal. It's extremely personal, one person to another, one at a time, and it's eternal and heavenly and huge. And that's the marvel of this. So with that confidence in mind, go back to the question I asked you. Why the wrath of God? Why was the wrath of God poured? Well, let me ask you this question. (laughs) Was the wrath of God poured out in full on Christ at the cross? Yes or no? Let me ask one more time because some of you aren't sure. Was the wrath of God poured out in full on Jesus at the cross? If you're not sure, the answer is yes, you better hope so. Because if the wrath of God was not fully poured out in Jesus on the cross, there's still some wrath left that you have to pay for. But the Bible tells us very specifically that the entirety of the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. That at Calvary, he took the full weight of God's wrath for the rejection of his very Messiah. Jesus took all of that and the weight of sin and everything and God poured his wrath out in Jesus on the cross. And knowing that, then the next question is, is there anything left for anyone who is in Christ to pay? Is there anything that you owe when you are washed by the blood of Jesus? No. No, there is no purgatory where you go, well, I was mostly good, but I got a little bit of dirt, so I gotta go down and pay for it. No, that is not biblical. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. The Bible doesn't teach that we have to somehow earn some bit of it. I remember being a kid, and I was confused about about all this, and, and I remember thinking, my theology as a kid, was that it was like going to school, that the bus would pick me up at the top of the hill, but I had to get there. If I didn't get there, I was gonna miss the bus. That is not God's grace. God's grace wakes me up in the morning in bed and lifts me up and takes me home. And so there's nothing left for you or anyone to do if you are in Christ, paid in full, the full wrath of God has been poured out on you. Question number four, then why do Christians for whom the wrath of God has been fully paid keep trying to prepare ourselves to enter into wrath? You understand what I'm saying here? Because you're all kind of going. Why do we keep thinking, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know. I might have to go into part of the tribulation. Why should I get away with not going into tribulation? What about Christians? First 283 years of the church was horrible. Persecution upon persecution, upwards of eight to 10 million Christians were martyred at that time. Why not me? Why do I get to skirt by? I don't know. I've looked at a few of you and asked the same question. (laughs) I've looked in the mirror and wondered, why not me? Why Why did Peter get crucified upside down? Why did Paul get beheaded? Why was James run through? Why not me? We'll answer that one. But I can tell you this, the wrath has been paid 
And if I am in Jesus Christ, when I am persecuted, when I face trials and tribulations in this world, it is not to prove myself worthy of salvation. Jesus makes me worthy of salvation. I am saved because of him. Doesn't mean I won't have trials. And it also doesn't mean that my trials are gonna be as bad as others have been previously. One more question and I will get back to our list. Some ask, why must the nation of God's chosen people, Israel, go into tribulation? Why would Doug say that? How dare he? Why would you say that part of the reason, one of the reasons for that seven-year tribulation is Israel, and the answer is because the chosen nation chose to reject their Messiah. All the wrath was poured out on Jesus, but if you reject Jesus, guess what's left for you? All the wrath. It's, it's, it's actually very simple because as Murray said, God is a just God and righteous and perfect and he must fulfill all righteousness. He must bring about perfect justice. He can't do anything less. And he's also a God of all grace. So Jesus took that punishment on the cross. Our sin he took and killed it, nailed it to the cross, resurrected three days later, and in his resurrection said, I wanna resurrect you too. That's the gospel. That's the gospel which we preach. That's the good news of the Bible. I, I was watching, we went and saw Jesus Revolution, which by the way, if you haven't seen it, go see it. It's great. It is the story back in the late 60s, early 70s of the, of the Calvary movement, and it is such a great movie. I was crying like five minutes in, it was horrible. I, think I cried more in that movie than I have in any movie in years, even Lord of the Rings. <laughs> it's a wonderful movie, but I was watching a podcast talking about that, and one issue was raised. One little problem with the movie, and, it, the, and the uh, person on the podcast said, I just, I just wish they had centered in a little bit more explicitly on the gospel. Because Chuck Smith in Calvary Chapel never preached a sermon without offering the gospel. Every time it came back to the gospel which I believe is the right way to teach. Bring it back to Jesus, bring it back to the gospel. What I've just told you what the gospel is, it's every sin you've ever committed or could ever commit nailed on the cross with Jesus. And if you are in Christ, if you give your life to Jesus, you are washed clean. The wrath is not for you. That's God's plan. And it's his desire that the wrath not be for anyone. However, as we talked about Israel, and I'm not talking about every Jewish person, I'm talking about Israel as a nation rejected him. Many, many Jewish people over the last 2,000 years, starting with the first century church, which was all Jewish, have been saved and are the church because they've given their lives to Jesus. But for the nation Israel, there was a rejection that happened, a hardening of their hearts, Romans 11 says, and now here at the end of the age, there is coming a reckoning which will as John Corson used to say, it's to wake up the Jews and to shake up the nations. That's the tribulation. Jeremiah 30, verse seven says, alas, for the day is great, there's none like it. It is a time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. More on that ahead in our study, but let's get back to it. So uh, we're gonna be back in Matthew 24, if you wanna flip over there now. 
We've talked about the personal catch, right? Uh, point number one was it's personal. Don't forget, it's personal to Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life, he said, John eleven twenty five. He said, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Paralambano, you will be received to me, he says. The personal catch. Second point we looked at was what we call the power lift, which is just that great description in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18 of the rapture of the church. Paul describes it beautifully and explicitly, and you can just go verse by verse through there and see if you wanna know what is the rapture. There it is, the power lift. Uh, thirdly, we looked at multiple pre-tribulation precedents. Why would you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture? Well, we have precedent for it in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament. We threw one in last week, and that is the Paeda, or the Paida, or Paidea, <laughs> whatever you wanna, it's Greek, so. The Paidea, my mom used to say when I was a kid, uh, she'd say, ask me anything, uh, in any question, any word in Greek, and, and I, can give you, I can give you the word for it, and, and I'd say, okay, what's this? And she'd say, I don't know, that's Greek to me. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> the Paidea was number four, which means children, and we talked about children, and, 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 and that there is no, specific age of accountability, and yet we also talked about how it's interesting that in Israel, God seems to lay that, that, that number at 20. That that's when a young man was considered an adult and accountable for his actions. I find that interesting. I think that's a whole lot older than I would have thought, and then I remember myself at 19 and go, no, that's about right. So, so the paideia. Uh, number five, last week we spent the most time on the paralambano, that being received unto. And that's Matthew 24. If you're there, you can look at the verse. It's verse 42, or verse 40. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken, paralambano. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, same word again. One will be left. If you look back at verse 39, it says they did not understand, talking about the days of Noah, until the flood came and took them all away, but took is a different word. So Jesus is using two different words to describe two different things, some that will, be, that will head into judgment, and that is into the tribulation, going right into the floodwaters, if you will, of tribulation, but then the others will be received, as Jesus used that same word. So the paralambano um, I will receive you to myself. We're gonna pick it up right there tonight with the last part of Matthew 24. So starting in verse 42. And again, if you, if you didn't get last week, go back because we did a real slow move through to show the chronology and, and how Jesus answered the three questions of the disciples. Verse 42, therefore, be on the alert. So now Jesus has answered all the questions and he's telling his disciples, and you and me by extension, by application, be on the alert. Now that you know this stuff, you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would, not, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Who's the head of the house right now? That's the devil. Satan is. Jesus calls him the, the prince of this world. He's the ruler of this world. He has absconded with this world, if you will. He's commandeered control over this world. And so he is the head of the house right now, and if he knew when Jesus was coming, he would muster all of his forces to try and keep that from happening as if, but still, he'd fight against it if he knew. 
For this reason you also, verse 44, must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. Which is always so hopeful for me, because I know a bunch of you don't think he's gonna come tonight. If anyone raises their hand and said, I do think he's gonna come tonight, you've just put it off for the rest of us. <laughs> verse 45, now watch this, because this is the next point. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Verses 45 and 46 speak of number six in our list through this, the patient servant. The patient servant. Blessed is that slave. Faithful and sensible are the words that Jesus uses of that slave. Someone who is, I'm sticking with this until he comes, and I don't know if he's gonna come tonight or tomorrow or next year or if he's gonna tarry another 10 years. God forbid, but if he did, what are you gonna do with that? I'm gonna be faithful. The patient servant continues in the work to which he, to which she was called and he says, truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. What he's describing, what Jesus is describing there is those who have been faithful who will then have a role in the kingdom in charge of all his possessions. Why? Because you've been faithful. Because you've stuck with it. You haven't been perfect. It's not like you haven't spilled the soup or, or, or messed up the napkins, but man, you have been faithful to the task before you. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect and in an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The patient servant, listen to me, what do we have to be ready for if, if we know right when he's gonna come. So mid-tribulation rapture approach says that the church is caught up three and a half years into this seven-year period. So all we have to do is wait until the signing of a covenant between Israel and a world leader, Antichrist, and start, you know, hit the stopwatch right then. Three and a half years in, he's coming, we'll go. We would know the day and the hour. There's no way to, we'd know it, we could know it but this is an unknown thing and the servants of the household of God are told to keep watch and to patiently continue in the ministry, continue in the work of the household, continue to feed the fellow servants, but keep watch and know that your master could come at any time. It's the evil slave who says, I don't think he's coming. Not anytime soon anyway. It's the evil slave who says, you guys are nuts for just always focusing on the coming of Jesus. Why not just get drunk? Why not beat the other slaves and repent at church next week? I mean, if there's no urgency, you know what we'll do? If there's no urgency, if there's no sense that he could come at any time, we will start to water down the truth. We will start to allow things that maybe we wouldn't if we knew. Think about the church in America today. If every Christian in America knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is coming tomorrow morning at seven o'clock, 
would we still fly rainbow flags in front of the churches? I mean, why is the church and so much of the church in America today, and I'm speaking specifically of our country, so woke? It's woke because they're not awake. It's woke because they're not watching for the return of the Lord. And, And if there's no urgency, if there's no sense that he's coming and he's called me as a servant to be faithful, and to continue to just, you know, feed the household at the proper time. That, that's our job. That's our job. Feed the household and invite anybody in from the outside. I love that in Jesus' revolution, how Chuck rented a house and all the hippies just moved into the house. Because they were all moving into his house. And it's such a beautiful picture of the doors are open. And, and at one point in the movie, Kelsey Grammer, who plays Chuck Smith, and Kelsey Grammer's phenomenal in this role, should get an Oscar for it. He won't, but he should. Um, you know what I think is gonna happen? Who was it that said this today? Was it Tom? I think it was you, Tom. So said, you know what they'll probably do is they'll probably um, offer some awards to the Jesus Revolution so more of us will watch, but they won't win anything. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought. So, so Chuck Smith at one point, Kelsey Grammer, made the comment, he said to his church, those doors are always open. They're open for anyone who wants to come in, and they're open if you gotta leave. And that's our role is to keep the doors open, to hold people with an open hand, to feed the household until he comes, but to keep watch and to invite anyone in who would come in and meet and get to know Jesus. It's vital teaching. Now understand this. We had this conversation. We just had a a shepherds and staff retreat the last couple of days. And we had this conversation. It is not my belief in the rapture that determines whether or not I'm raptured, okay? So I'm not saying that if you have a mid-trib perspective or a pre-wrath perspective or a different perspective you know, than I have, I'm not saying that only pre-tribulation rapture people are gonna be caught up. What I am saying is there are gonna be a lot of people who are not pre-tribulation rapture people who will be very surprised. <laughs> because I'm, just, I'm convinced of this, but again, it is not my belief in the rapture that saves me. What saves me? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus does, but my belief in the rapture or of how the rapture will take place will affect my sanctification. It will affect how I live my life. It can't not impact it. And it could also affect the salvation of others because it doesn't matter so much this week. I got next week. I have next year. And notice this. I hadn't seen this before, but... It says, if that evil slave says in his heart, you know what Jesus just said? There are faithful and sensible slaves and there are evil slaves in the house. In the household of God. Jim asked me the question uh, yesterday or the day before, so do you think that there are Christians who are gonna be left behind? Depends on how you define the word Christian. I believe there will be people who think they're Christians who will be left behind. I think there'll be people who show up to church that Sunday morning going, where is everybody? And that's not even humorous or comical, it's tragic. There are people playing the game. There are, Jesus said, tares in the wheat that are part of every local fellowship, every congregation, every church. There are people who are showing up, but there's no faith. There's no relationship in Jesus. It's the gospel that saves us. And I believe, yes, there are players 
in the church who are playing a dangerous game in which the soon coming of Jesus Christ is either denied or ignored completely. Now we don't talk about that. We don't talk about revelation. It's too hard to understand, which is a lie of the devil. We don't deal with end times. That's crazy stuff. That's French stuff. And if we start doing that, people are gonna stop coming to church. Well, we've got more people right here on Wednesday night than we've had recently. I find that very interesting. Paul was a patient servant. A patient servant. And when he recognized that he was going to die in Christ, because he's sitting on death row, his death was imminent. When he's writing 2 Timothy, he knows, okay, I'm gonna die. Knowing he was gonna die in Christ, therefore he also knew he'd be the first to be caught up in the rapture because the dead in Christ rise first. He wrote 2 Timothy 4, verse seven, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. In the future there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Well, Paul, what do you mean, his appearing? His first appearing or his second? It's absolutely his second. The context is his second. Now, personally, I love both of his appearings. I love his first appearing. I love the fact that he appeared the first time at all and that he went through what he did and he died on the cross for us and provided our salvation and rose again and was raptured himself to heaven. I love that. But I long for his second appearing. I love that. And Paul's referring to that. And I'm just telling you, loving his soon appearing changes you. It affects your sanctification. It changes you. It's that patient alertness that literally begins to alter the atmosphere of your life and your thinking and what's important and what matters to you. Over and keep your finger in Matthew. You can turn over here or just listen to me. But 1 John, 1 John chapter three, one of our favorite passages around here. 1 John chapter three, verse one. Jake recently taught through 1 John, and that's on our YouTube channel, and it's a great teaching. If you wanna go through a book, it's a good one. 1 John chapter 3, verse one, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason, the world does not know him because it, or does not know us because it did not know him. People don't recognize Jesus in us because they've rejected him. But when they start to recognize him, they start to see him in us. It, it changes things. But listen, verse two, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Verse two, what is that? That's the rapture. That is the moment of his appearing. That's the first time we see him face to face when we have been caught up. And John says in verse three, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. What is the purifying hope if not the anticipation of the soon return of Jesus? It is the purifying hope, knowing it may be this evening or tomorrow or the next day. I mean, I'm not trying to put a, a time stamp on it, a date on it, but man, it could be any time. And knowing that has this purifying effect on my mind and on my heart and on how I live my life. So back in Matthew 24, the patient servant 
is not only fully aware of the master's return, but he or she is moved and motivated to love and serve the household faithfully until he comes. And if not for the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, why the patient servant picture? Why would Jesus give us to that? Or give that to us, that, that picture of the servant who is looking for the master to return and therefore faithfully serving. That is a picture of someone who is anticipating a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And going back to where we started, pre-tribulation, because we were not, we were not made for wrath. We were made for salvation. We were created for salvation. That's what God wants for all of us. All right, so that's number six, a patient servant. Number seven, number seven is a perfected escape. A perfected escape. Luke 21, verse 36 says, and if you wanna turn your Bibles to the next main thing we're gonna look at, go to 1 Corinthians 15. While you're turning there, listen to me. Luke 21, 36, Jesus said, keep on the alert at all times. Why would I have to do that if the rapture was not soon to come or if it was known when it would happen? I wouldn't have to keep on the alert, but he says, do so, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place. Now, if you stop right there, you could say, well, he could be talking to Israel because they make an escape halfway, they do make an escape halfway through the tribulation to a place prepared for them in the wilderness. That's in Revelation 12. So maybe he's talking to Israel there. Listen, he says, pray that you may have a strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This is an escape that puts you immediately before Jesus. So Luke 2136, this is Jesus making yet another statement about the rapture of the church. Pray for it. Pray you'll be among those caught up and standing before the Son of Man. The word escape there, it's a wonderful word because, you know, some call the rapture escapism. It's escapism. I totally agree. Absolutely, it's escapism. Don't you want out? I mean, would you not like to escape? all the stuff that's going on and be in, in that better place and be with the Lord. And some go, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be with the Lord. I'm not a big cloud guy. Okay, we're not talking about clouds. Escapism. Well, the word escape in the Greek literally translates to seek safety in flight. <laughs> Was that good timing? Yeah. To seek safety in flight to flee to a safe place, to, to, to leave and be in a safe place. But again, it's so much more than escapism. And now in 1 Corinthians 15, it is transformation. So we, we hinted on this earlier, the rapture of the church being caught up in that moment, there is a change that takes place. We're not just transported from here to there. It's what happens in the meantime. It's what happens during that twinkling of an eye do you remember, remember Enoch? We already talked about him, that he, he was translated, right? Like you would translate a word into another word. Or he was transposed like you would transpose music into another key. He was translated, the Hebrew writer says, in Hebrews 11, uh, verse five or so, right around there. Translated. Well, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. 
Paul says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, if you stop right there, someone might say, well, then, okay, so, so in the rapture of the church, our bodies will just kind of go, and our spirits will go up, right? No, no, no. But my flesh, as is, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Behold, verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. I still think that's a great little sign for a nursery. Isn't that great? We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. <laughs> verse 52, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, which by the way is immeasurable. It's not the blink of an eye. We can measure the blink of an eye. We cannot measure a twinkle. It's way too fast. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we, Paul says, still in that moment, assuming he's gonna be caught up right out of life, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. That's a transformation of the physical body into a glorified body. Just like Jesus, as we've talked about in his resurrection, it was full bodily resurrection, body, soul, and spirit. Everything that Jesus was when he was crucified, he came up glorified and he was so still bodily, glorified, but still full bodily resurrection that he ate fish. He said, touch me. And we talked about previously, that's resurrection. And that's what you can expect. Not to have these ratty old bodies, but to have this glorified in such a remarkable way into something we have never been. I'm excited for that. More each day. But it is a perfected escape because it's an escape during which, through which, in which I will be instantly and finally perfected after the manner of Christ. Oh, I'm not saying divine like Christ. I'm not saying God like Christ. No, no, no. But Jesus is the example of our resurrection, glorification of the entire person, body, soul, and spirit. Paul says over in Philippians chapter three, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. There's gonna be a transformation in this rapture of the church, a perfected escape. It's not just the getaway, it's what happens when we get away. Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So the perfecting even now is going on. The sanctification is going on right now in our lives. We're being made more and more like Jesus as we faithfully live and serve in the household of God and keep the doors open for people. He is, he is sanctifying and perfecting us, but the moment of absolute perfection of the glorification of God in our bodies is going to be what Paul calls in Philippians 1.6, the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus. You might just note this, jot this down. Paul uses that phrase five times. Five is the number of grace in the Bible. But he uses the phrase five times, 
the day of Christ Jesus or the day of Jesus. And he, is always, he always uses it to describe the rapture of the church. In all five of the verses where he uses it, it is describing the moment that we are caught up and transformed these humble bodies into the glorified state that he has prepared, that he wants for us. The day of Christ Jesus. Now that's not the day of the Lord. And we've said many times here that the Bible is very specific and very intentional in language. The day of the Lord that Joel prophesied about, that Peter refers to, that is spoken of in different places in the scripture, that's a much bigger, longer day than the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus, we're caught up to be with Jesus. The day of the Lord then begins there, runs all the way through the tribulation, all the way through the millennial kingdom, and right on to the great throne judgment. That is called the day of the Lord too. That's all the day of the Lord. And when that day is over, with the dawn of a new day, we'll have the new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth. And I'll get more on that later too. I know I don't keep saying that. Some of you have been saying, Rick, you keep saying, hold that thought. And I don't think I can hold any more thoughts. <laughs> well, hold that thought. The day of Christ Jesus is the day that we are perfected in the moment of the escape. Okay, so a perfected escape, that's number, what did I say, seven? That's number seven. So Jesus taught it, the apostles wrote about it, the early church believed it and lived that way. Has the last day's church, through lack of teaching or an anthropocentric focus or even fear, gotten morally, spiritually, and expectantly lethargic? I think so. I see it and it breaks my heart. But again, 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And that doesn't mean that you're out, you know, washing and every, it, it means that he is purifying you as you fix your eyes on his coming. Stay with Paul just a bit longer. Um, Number eight, and this one's interesting. By the way, let me say one more thing about 1 Corinthians 15, because all of these, we could go through the entire passages and we could be at this for the next year or until Jesus comes, whichever comes first. But 1 Corinthians 15, understand that when Paul gets to verse 51 and starts to tell the mystery, and in verse 52, talks about that we're gonna go in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, we go. All of the context of 1 Corinthians 15 is resurrection. So what Paul is describing is our resurrection. So if you believe in the resurrection, you believe in the rapture. You may still be confused or, or, or on a different page than I am about when the rapture happens, but resurrection is rapture, rapture is resurrection. It is the day of Christ Jesus. It is our salvation. Are we clear on that one? I know I keep repeating it, but Les tells me a good teacher is a repeater, so I'm trying to repeat a lot of things. Les tells me a good teacher is a repeater, so I'm trying to repeat a lot of things. <laughs> So if we stay with Paul a little bit longer, do you know a good teacher is a repeater? <laughs> if we stay with Paul a little bit longer, uh, number eight, number eight, jot this down. This is important, and this is a point of contention, but I'm gonna give you a perspective on it. Number eight is prepared for departure. Prepared for departure. Turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter two. 2 Thessalonians chapter two. If you're having trouble finding it, it's right after 1 Thessalonians. 
2 Thessalonians chapter two. Prepared for departure. Watch this, just stay with me on this. <clears throat> this is a remarkable teaching. But as I said before, when we looked at the, uh, the power lift, right, what I, what I called uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter four, remember, Paul wrote that to the church at Thessalonica. And that church, when Paul wrote and talked about the rapture of the church, he was writing to encourage them because they had had some people pass away. And he was saying, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Your Christian brothers and sisters, those who have died in Christ, here's the deal. Here's what's gonna happen. And he describes the rapture of the church. It was given to this same church, the church at Thessalonica. Now, this second letter that Paul sends to them comes after they have fallen on some hard times. Now, this was, this was just a year prior that he had been with them and teaching them. Now, he writes this letter. They had fallen on hard times. They were having some serious difficulties, and some began to fear that they had been left behind. Word was starting to circulate around this little church in this little town we've been left behind. We have actually, we are in the tribulation, we've gone into the tribulation. That's what's happening to us right now as they were being persecuted. Well, watch this. Chapter two, verse one, 2 Thessalonians. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's one thing, and our gathering together to him. That's another thing. That's not the one and the same event. With regards to the coming of Jesus, the glorious appearing of Jesus, which is gonna happen, but also with regards to our gathering together to him, that's the rapture. That's the, the being received unto, the catching up. With regards to this, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, and apparently one was circulating, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What's the day of the Lord? It's the tribulation which I just told you a minute ago, the day of the Lord begins with the start of the tribulation. It is a day of darkness, a day of thick clouds and darkness, Joel tells us, a horrible day, a day of judgment at the beginning of the day anyway, and then rolls into the millennial kingdom and all the way to the great throne judgment after that. But the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord has come, they're saying, Jacob's trouble is upon us. Verse three, Paul says, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Verse four, Paul describes what's called the abomination of desolation. Donna, you need to hold on to that. I'm gonna come back to that next week. The abomination of desolation, when Antichrist is gonna declare himself as God, that happens right at the midpoint of the tribulation. And I will repeat that a few times, so you don't even have to worry about it right now. But focus in on verse three. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Listen, some of you know this, but it's important that we build, that this is all part of the information we're building all together. The apostasy, the word is ho-apostasia. Ho-apostasia in the Greek. And again, there are people who vehemently disagree with me on this. I know because every time I teach it, I get emails about it. But I'm gonna keep teaching it. 
Ho-apostasia, the apostasy. The word apostasia in the Greek translates departure or leave or dismissal. And it came to mean rebellion or falling away. But the word intrinsically means in the Greek, departure. That is, the day of the Lord, the tribulation will not come until the departure happens first. What's the departure that he's talking about? Don't answer that. Let's explain something here. Notice there's a definite article with apostasy. He doesn't say, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless apostasy happens. He says unless the apostasy happens or the apostasia or the departure. The day of the Lord's not gonna happen before the departure happens. And he adds, and the Antichrist, a man of lawlessness, declares himself God. That's gonna happen too at the outset. That's gonna happen too at that point. But it's not gonna happen until the departure comes. So it's the departure. We're not talking about a generic idea. We're talking about a specific event. The departure. Ho apostasia. If it means apostasy, as in rebellion, and some take it that way, and and many Bibles, most Bibles just say until the apostasy comes. You know why? They're chickening out. It's kind of like using the word baptism. Let's just put the word baptism in there. What's the Greek word, baptizo? What does it mean? Submerge, immerse. Now, not all our churches are doing that, so let's just call it baptism and tell them that's what we're doing. That's where the word baptism came from. It's kind of the same idea here as they say it's not gonna come until the apostasy. Let's just use the word apostasy. We'll take apostasia and we'll transliterate it to English and then when people say the apostasy, we'll say, well, yeah, that's falling away from faith. But that's not necessarily what the word meant. Like I said, it means departure, the departure. And if it's apostasy as in rebellion, then you gotta wonder, well, will there be a moment in time when there is a mass rebellion in the church? A mass departure from faith, a mass falling away from Jesus, the apostasy. Or is it more likely as we see that it's a trickle-down effect, that people just kind of do that. Now, I'm not saying that there can't be a moment of mass departure from Jesus. There could be, and, you know, and I I think, I think it's really hard to conceive of that, to be honest, because God always has a remnant. But if you want to take it that way, that it's rebellion, that departure means rebellion, perhaps, perhaps, It seems more likely to me that rebellion happens kind of as a slow boil. But continue on thinking about this word. The noun form of this word, apostasia, is used, and in the noun form it is apostasia. It's used two times in the New Testament. And typically when a word is used, what we do is we look at the word in one place and we compare it to the word in another place. So we say, okay, what can we learn there? So the noun form is used two times. It's used here and it's used in Acts chapter 21 where Paul had been accused of causing Jews to leave their faith. They were saying, oh, he's leading people away from Torah, away from the law. Acts 21 verse 21 says, 
they're, they're talking to Paul, and they say, they've been told about you that you're teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. Now, here's the problem. Even there, Acts 21, verse 21, the word apostasia is used. You are teaching the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, to leave Moses, to depart from Moses. Well, isn't that rebellion? That could be. So maybe it's a picture of rebellion, but it's also a picture of simply leaving, of walking away from the law. And that was the accusation against Paul. Now that's the noun form, so it's used twice, and the problem is, both times it's used, it could mean rebellion, or it could mean departure. Which one is it? Well, it's, I don't know. Well, I think I know, but I don't know. So what's the verb form of the same word? Just stay with me, I don't wanna get overly technical, but this is important. The verb form of apostasia is aphistomai. Now, I know it sounds like a different word, but it's the same word. We have words like that where it's the same word, but it's pronounced differently or used differently if it's a noun or a verb. The verb form aphistomai is used 15 times in the New Testament. Good, so for those of us who just wanna know what the literal meaning of the Bible is, let's look at the 15 times that this word is used along with the two, because I'm not getting clarity on just the two. So we go look at the 15 times. The first three times, it's used in terms of what we might say apostasy. It's here, and then 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse one, the Spirit explicitly says in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, aphistomai, which is the verb of apostasia. Some will fall away from the faith. Um, that's interesting because it, it, there's no definite article there. It's not that in the last times there will be the falling away from the faith. It just says some will, verb form, they will fall away but you can also translate that, depart. They will depart from the faith. The second time that it's used this way, Acts chapter 12, verse 10, it's uh, Peter's, well, no, wait, it's used that way three times. I'm not gonna give you all the verses. It's used that way three times. First Timothy 4, 1, and, and like we see, still not sure about 2 Thessalonians 2. 1 Timothy 4.1, it's used that way that some will fall away from or depart from the faith. So it's used to describe a rebellion three times of the 15. 12 times that it is used in the Bible, it's used this way, Acts chapter 12, verse 10, when Peter was in prison and the angel comes and leads him out, it says they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. The word of, that's used there, departed, does not mean the angel immediately rebelled against him. It just means the angel left. The angel departed from. It's used 12 times that way. And I think, in my opinion, even if you're referring to it as a rebellion, depart is still the better translation of the word. To depart. Is it a mass rebellion? Or is it a mass departure that is this event that Paul is talking about? It won't happen day of the Lord, until that departure. Until the departure. By the way, the first seven English translations of the Bible translated this, it will not come until, unless the departure comes first. First seven English translations. 
When the translators went to the word, they said it means departure. That includes the Geneva Bible, which was the Bible the pilgrims used when they departed from England. And they would recognize this phrase. They would not see apostasy and go, okay, all the church or a mass number of the church has to fall away and then Antichrist will rise and then the day of the Lord. They would read this, okay, first there's a departure of the church, a rapture, a catching up, a leaving of this place. Whether it's a mass falling away, apostasy, or a departure, which is what I believe the word means, and I believe that Paul is referring to the rapture in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse three. But listen to me, either way, what he's talking about is pre-tribulation. He's talking about this thing that's gonna happen before the tribulation. And if it is a moment in time, an event of a mass falling away, and then the tribulation comes, well, then all we have to do is wait for that. Let's just look and watch for a big mass exodus of faith, and then we'll know, oh, okay, Time's here. It makes a whole lot more sense to me that the departure refers to the rapture of the church. That the day of the Lord will not come before the church is caught up, pulled out, raptured. And why is Paul writing it this way? By the way, uh, Kenneth Wiest, who is a, a New Testament Greek scholar par excellence, says first and foremost, this word in this context refers to a geographical departure. That the tribulation, the day of the Lord is not gonna come until there is a the departure. The departure, which sounds to me like all of Paul's writings referring to the rapture of the church. And now he's talking to the church of Thessalonica who he told about the rapture. And now he's telling them, don't worry, you're not in the day of the Lord because the rapture is gonna come first. Or to put it literally, the departure is gonna happen first. So, I believe that that's, that's what it is, that he is, in verse three, referring to the rapture being caught up. But, but listen to me, why is Paul writing all this? Look at verse five. <laughs> Do you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, he says? You know how long he was with them, right? You Bible students, how long was he with them? Three Sabbaths. <laughs> in three Sabbaths, which means on the outside, maybe he was there five weeks. If you put the Sabbath kind of in the middle. Paul was in Thessalonica three to five weeks and he was already talking about the rapture of the church. Do you think it was important as he was teaching them these things? Don't you remember? I, we talked about these things, he says in verse five. Verse six, and you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. Right now, Paul says, and this is 2,000 years ago, there is a restraint against the Antichrist so that he cannot rise, so that that spirit, that demonic evil spirit that eventually is gonna inhabit someone can't do it. There's something holding him back. There's a restraining influence. You know what it is. You know what restrains him, verse six says. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And we already see this going on. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved." Hold on there, wait a minute, go back. What is Paul doing here? 
He is explaining verse three. He's now going into detail. What do you mean, Paul? So if I'm sitting here, as we've been doing, and I've kind of taken you through a little bit of word stuff, and some of you on Wednesday night are going, I don't know if I can handle more Greek. It's okay, because now Paul explains what he means. In verse three, let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come until the departure comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So he describes two things that are gonna happen that kick off that tribulation period. Two things that happen before it first. But then he goes on to explain it, that it's not gonna come. Don't you remember I told you these things? You know what's restraining that man of lawlessness right now. You know there's something holding him back. Even though we see sin at work, we see the mystery of lawlessness at work, he who now restrains will do so until when? Until he's taken out of the way. Sounds like departure, doesn't it? Until he departs. And then that one who restrains will no longer be there and all the activity of Satan and Antichrist will come on like a flood, which is exactly how Daniel is, is told the tribulation will be. We'll probably get to Daniel next week, maybe, or the week after, if we're here. This letter came in assurance that these believers hadn't missed a thing. Y'all, you haven't missed the catching up. You have not missed the departure. You were not left behind. And notice this, notice this intimate connection because verses six and verse seven, very interesting. He says, again, you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. So there's a what. And then he says, verse seven, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. What? Not who. And then he, not it. <laughs> See, this is the Jeopardy answer for what's going on here. What is the church? He is the Holy Spirit. The restraining influence is the church filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a what. So when it says, you know what restrains him, that can't refer specifically to the Holy Spirit because he is not an it. He's not a what, he's a who. So why didn't Paul say in verse six, you know who restrains him in his, so that in his time he'll be revealed? You know who? The Holy Spirit, but he doesn't say who, he says what? Why does he say what? Because the church is the what. Paul says, hey, church is restraining this but not on its own because it's immediately followed with only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. He is the Holy Spirit. There's this intimate connection of the Holy Spirit and the church. The Holy Spirit in the church. The Spirit and the bride say come, right? Until what? Until he is taken out of the way. The departure. The rapture of the church. And I believe that's exactly what he's talking about. And this is why we've, we've had this question come up before. What happens to the Holy Spirit in the world? The Holy Spirit goes with us. Once you have the Spirit, he does not leave you. You may not be aware of him. You may ignore him. You may feel like out of touch with him. He does not leave you. Repent me, baptize every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to all who are near and far off, Peter said. 
Paul repeats this. They talk a lot about, and Jesus said, I'm not gonna leave you orphans. I'm gonna come to you. And so the believer has the Holy Spirit. At the rapture of the church, the Spirit's taken out of the way. Guess what? If he's going, I'm going. Because I am filled with the Spirit of God. And now, turn in your Bibles over to Romans chapter eight, verse eight, and we're gonna end here so I can give you a couple of minutes for questions if you have any. Romans chapter eight, verse eight. Remembering now that the restraining influence against evil and even against the Antichrist himself is the Holy Spirit in the church. That is in individual believers, but also in the church itself. He is the lampstand of the church. So he's in us, he's among us, he's in the midst of us, and he's in each of us individually. And so there is a great spiritual power there that literally is restraining evil from doing what it really wants to do, restraining Antichrist. And I'll tell you what, that means it is gonna be so dark. I mean, if, if there's a restraining influence right now, the Holy Spirit in the church and the world, and the world is as bad as it is right now, what when that's gone and that's taken out of the way? But watch this, Romans chapter eight, verse eight. Remember this, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So the flesh isn't the way to do it. But he says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And that's us right now. My body's dying. I mean, I know this more every day. My body's dying. My body's getting older. My body is wearing out. It's not functioning as well as it used to. I love telling my kids stories about slam dunking in high school. I did. I know, look at me right now. You're like, no, you didn't. Yes, I did. In a game, one game, one time in my high school basketball career, I drove and I slammed and I was king of the world. It was great. I don't think I could get three inches off the ground now. This white man can't jump. But the body's getting older and the body is dying and the body is wearing out, yet, oh, the spirit's alive. My spirit, I can tell you honestly, is more alive in Jesus now than it has ever been in my entire life. And it's so fun and exciting and thrilling to live that way. And yeah, this is wearing, but the Spirit's alive. And that's exactly what Paul describes. But now listen to this, because he's talking about the rapture. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Go back to verse 11, listen again. If the Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And that is not just a better day today because you trusted in Jesus. 
That is the life that will happen when you are caught up. And the Spirit is the power to raise you. We talked about the power lift of 1 Thessalonians chapter four. What power can literally lift me off my feet, past the hoop, and right on up to be with Jesus in the twinkling of an eye? It is the power, the dunamis of the Holy Spirit who is in me. So I don't have to work, I don't have to pack. I don't have to do lifts, you know? I don't have to work out. I don't have to, all I need to do is fix my eyes on Jesus. As a servant of the house, keep my eyes on him, loving him, longing for him, and the power to catch me and you up, and the power to change us is the Holy Spirit within you right now. But you might say, well, why should we get to go? Why do we get to get off scot-free and head out of here when other Christians and other times have had such a bad time of it. I'm gonna end just with two little articles here and I'm just gonna point out a couple things. These, um, this guy's name is Pete Garcia. Pete Garcia and he's got um, a YouTube channel that is REV310, Rev310. Uh, so if you wanna look him up on YouTube and he's got these different teaching things, he's, he's really good. He's very straightforward. Um, not necessarily that exciting. He just gives the information, but he wrote a couple of articles that were sent to me and I began to read through them and they're really good. Um, what about this question of it's unfair? Because there are people who say it's not right that there is a generation of Christians who will just be caught up and never taste death. That's not fair. It is not fair that we in this generation have so little persecution compared to the first century church. I agree. That doesn't seem fair to me. It seems like, well, they you know, went through so much and we've had a few things that have concerned us. But when was the last time you resisted to the point of shedding blood? The Hebrew pastor asks us and I think, huh. Well, it really hasn't been that hard for me. So it's not really fair, is it? It's not fair. So he answers the question. In fact, this, this little paper uh, is, is entitled 10 Things Wrong with the Pre-Tribulation Rapture from the world's perspective. I like that. So he said, first of all, it's unfair. It, it's an unfair process that someone would just be caught up. Well, he says, what, what I mean by this is that it differentiates between believers of this dispensation with believers from every other dispensation. What about faithful Israel? What about others at other times? Why do we get to go? And he says, according to Colossians 4.3, the mystery of Christ, mysterion is the Greek word, not previously revealed, was something that had been hidden from the ages and generations past. But now was being revealed that God would come down in the flesh and through his death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, become our kinsman redeemer and would bring both Jew and Gentile together in one body, that's the church, and that he would dwell in his believers via the Holy Spirit. Since the rapture, harpazo, catching up, is the culmination of this mystery, then the rapture itself was also a mystery. It wasn't talked about before. It wasn't explicitly stated before, even though we saw all those precedents. So then he goes on and he says, listen, he says, the church couldn't exist before Christ's burial, death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus said he would build his church and he's been doing that ever since and during this age, the times of the Gentiles. Now listen to this. 
What differentiates this generation from any other generation before us? Why are Western churches getting a pass when so many have and are suffering for the sake of Christ? He says, if the rapture was just to rescue Western American Christians, this argument would have a point. Turns out, all Christians, all Christians are going to be raptured, not just American Christians. And that's why I started out with our hermeneutic. Our human, how do we look at this? Are we looking through the lens of Western Christianity or are we looking through the lens of Christ? The whole church is gonna be raptured, he says. Ours is the first generation with Israel restored back as a nation in 1,878 years. So we just happened to be that generation. We just chance chanced, for those of you who are Sunday, to be that generation Ours is the first generation with the technology necessary for the beastly kingdom to take over the world. We didn't have the tech for it before. It can happen now. Ours is the first generation since Christ to arrive at the appointed time, 2,000th year since Christ's death and resurrection. And then you give some, oh, well, I'm gonna have to talk about that next week. I'll explain that. Hold on to that thought, Donna. And this is... <laughs> He says, and this is not about our timing. This is God's timing. It has nothing to do with you and me. We just happen to be here right now. And God is the one who has chosen at the end of the age to rapture that group of people. And you know what? Perhaps we'll all die before it happens. And there's gonna be another group of people that get to be caught up from life. How unfair. Not true. Because if we die, we are caught up first. We're still part of the rapture. It's not, so don't worry about it. Don't be, oh, I hope I get raptured before I die. Hey, it doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, you die in Christ, you're caught up first. If you're alive in Christ, it is coming, you're caught up. Doesn't matter, you're still raptured. Every last person who is in Christ. So it's not our timing, it's God's timing. And then this other article that he says, could the rapture have happened prior to 1948? No. It's interesting. No, it couldn't since that time has passed and we're still here. <laughs> so it's kind of obvious. But then he says, nevertheless, it would be highly impossible given the fact that Israel wasn't in her land yet and there wasn't the requisite technology, which I just read, available for Antichrist to do all that Revelation says he's gonna do. Could the rapture have happened between 1948 and 2000? Given the reality that time has already passed and we are still here, it's easy to say no. He says, could the rapture happen from post-2000 to the present? Yes, and absolutely certain given the convergence of all the signs, the mega sign, Israel's national sovereignty, technological advancements, geopolitical alignments, deterioration in Christendom, existential threats, prophetically biblical timelines and anniversaries, and the global economic desperation. By the way, on that last one, there's nowhere for the world to turn to fix things financially. This, you know that right now, every single American, which means all of you sitting in here, your debt in the national debt is $94,000. You thought you had bad credit card debt before? I'm not pointing to anyone in particular, but. <laughs> you, you called me out. No, no, I'm not. We all owe, according to the national debt, as citizens of America, $94,000 each right now, today. That's crazy. It's not fair, man. 
And there's nowhere for the world nations to turn to fix the financial crisis. We have arrived, he says, at the perfect storm conditions for the tribulation to happen not only quickly, but almost effortlessly. But you know what? We have not been destined for wrath, but for salvation in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. And one other verse, last verse, I'm gonna leave you with this. 1 Thessalonians chapter one. As if Paul hadn't said it enough, he's talking to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, oh, they themselves, talking about churches in Macedonia and Achaia, they have reported to us, this is verse nine, 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verse nine, they have reported to us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, listen, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Pre-tribulation rapture. He rescues us from the wrath. We don't go into it. So Father, we thank you for your word to us tonight. And again, covering a lot of ground, and I don't mean to confuse, I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will make clarity and make sense of all that we've talked about. But honestly, Father, the only thing we really need to make the most sense out of is the gospel. And so I pray that everyone here will have heard clearly the gospel of salvation. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. That's the great truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Any questions? Yes. Great question. So, oh yeah, Mike, thank you. Vanna? <laughs> I'm gonna have to ask you again. Well, and, and the only reason is that we gotta get this online. I will, I'll repeat this for her, yeah, yeah. So, the question was, and, and we're gonna have Jake running, so I, I'm really hoping that we have a question from over here and over here. Next. The question was, if the Holy Spirit uh, departs with the church, the church and the Holy Spirit are the restraining influence together and both are taken out of the way, Don't, can people still be saved during the tribulation, which yes, they can. We'll talk about that. We will get there next week for sure. Yes, people can and will still be saved in the tribulation, but if the Holy Spirit's gone, how does that work? With great difficulty, but I would put it to you that it is the time of Jacob's distress, so it'll work the same then like it worked in the Old Testament. People could believe the Holy Spirit didn't necessarily come upon them. The Holy Spirit came upon David. The Holy Spirit came upon Saul before him, and then God withdrew his spirit from Saul. So it, it is my opinion, but because the Holy Spirit is gone, I still think the Holy Spirit will be given to people, but it'll be on an individual basis. And there's a dynamic here that I think we recognize, maybe we don't talk about a lot, but when we gather, the Spirit is with us, and the Spirit works in and through the church beyond you know, me and Matt and, and Brandy and Corinne, beyond just these individual people, the Spirit is at work in moving in the world and restraining influence. That will be gone. 
people will still be able to be saved and God will give his spirit to whom he wills, but not in the same dynamic of the spirit indwelling the entire body of Christ as he does right now. And that's what's really another thing that's scary about the tribulation is there's, there's no strength of the spirit and power of the spirit to hold back all the evil from just going crazy. Okay? Questions in the back. We just want to get it online so people can hear the questions. Yeah. So you're saying that you still see Christ after the tribulation. Yes. Um, so do they have to die? Yeah, I believe so. Now, physically, yeah. Um, if people receive Christ during the tribulation, which they will. And, and the reason, we'll, we'll look at this next week explicitly, but Revelation chapter seven, we see a massive number of people who have gotten saved in the tribulation, saved out, of, out from the tribulation during that time. And it's a unique group of people, and for lack of a better phrase, they've been called tribulation saints, but people who come to faith in Jesus and actually are gonna be saved, which is the massive, amazing wonder of the grace of God. But... The thing to know about that is, A, it's gonna be very difficult for people to believe because there's also gonna be delusion that's taking place in a massive scale, evil and immorality and, and the pressures of, of world government, all that. So it's gonna be very difficult. And yet God, because he's God and glory to his name, is still gonna save mass numbers of people. And there's a way he'll go about that that Revelation describes. So if you come to faith during the tribulation, what does that mean? I like what John Corson said about that. He said, don't lose your head, use your head. Use your head now. Accept Jesus now. If you can't believe in Jesus now, what makes you think you're gonna believe in him then? And, and for those who say, well, I'll just wait and see if all this happens, and if it does, well, then maybe I'll believe. How do you know? Because belief isn't based on facts and what the eyes see. Belief is based on faith. And if you can't put faith in Jesus now, why do you think you will then? There's gonna be massive rebellion to the point of halfway through the tribulation, people stop repenting altogether. Someone comes to faith in the tribulation, recognizes they have been left. And I think there are gonna be a lot of people who right now are Christian in name only, Sinos. And they will, at that time, all that they've been taught, all that they know, all that they've learned, they'll go, oh, Jesus, I repent. And they're gonna be saved, but probably martyred for it. Because those tribulation saints in Revelation 7 are all under the throne near the Father, having been martyred for their faith. And they ask, how long is it gonna be? And God says, until the number of your brethren join you, in other words, are martyred like you. So, the price to pay for waiting is huge and very difficult. And yet God's gonna do it anyway. So, I mean, to me, that's praise his grace. But yeah, people will be saved and they will die probably because of that faith. Yeah, next question. Yeah, Joel. I've been on something for like seven okay, this could be dangerous.
Which verse is that one again? Okay, all right, right, okay. So each in his own, own order, Christ the first fruits. We talked about this last week, actually. Christ is the first fruits, Reshith. In fact, we talked about it Sunday morning and looking at the book of Ruth, the feast of Reshith is the feast of the barley harvest, and then there's the feast of Shavuot, Pentecost. And Christ is the first fruits. And then the church, Christ first, and then the church. So um, those who are Christ at his coming I believe refers to the church. I think it's the rapture of the church. So Christ is the first fruits, first one resurrected from, the death, from death never to die, and then the church when he comes. So the coming of Christ there is coming in the clouds. But we also know the Bible talks about him coming and setting foot on the earth. Yes. Yeah. Now, what's interesting about the second coming of Jesus is while it is one coming, it's two phases. In the rapture of the church, he comes to the clouds to meet us, and then in the glorious appearing, he actually sets foot on the earth. That's two phases of the same thing. It's still called the parousia. It's still the second coming of Jesus, but one is part one and then part two. Again, just breaking it down as simply as possible in the scriptures. So those who are Christ at his coming, what's beautiful about that phrase is it also could include anyone who belongs to Christ when he sets foot. So it may also include saved Israel. All those who belong to Christ as he comes, he comes first and takes the church, but then when he returns, saved Israel is there. And there may yet be, this is a gray area for me, but there may yet be people on earth who did get saved and somehow survived the tribulation beyond just Israel who would also be Christ that is coming. I, I won't know until, uh, on that day, we'll talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Keep that in mind, Donna. <laughs> yes. I, okay, so um, we get a little bit into surmise there, but yeah, because the way Paul laid it out, and then he says in, in 1 Thessalonians, and then in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, twinkling of an eye. So it, it's like that. So here's my take. As far as the world's perspective, and, and in a moment of time, it's a twinkling of an eye. Everything happens like that. Trumpet, call, boom, gone, changed with him, done, we're there. For us, it may seem longer. In, in, in the perspective of time, it's a twinkling. But we're immediately outside of time, right? So I think our experience of the rapture of the church, it won't be like, where am I? Oh, ah, Jesus, you know, it, it's, <laughs> I think it's gonna be more of, wow, you know, that, that we're gonna hear and see and go and, and whereas from a, an earthly perspective, twinkling. You know, done, where are they? From our perspective, Paul describes what's gonna happen. Yeah. Good question. Yeah, that's exciting. Corinne, here comes the mic.
That's a great question. Uh, there are a couple of ways of couple, couple of ways of answering that. Yeah, I mean, right now, you can be anywhere on the planet and see what's happening anywhere on the planet. I mean, you know that. Well, and oh, yeah, I would imagine absolutely. But um, so you're talking because we'll see him, but we're going to see him from a very different perspective because we will have already been with him. So when he returns to the earth, we're gonna be behind him, following him on white horses, Revelation 19, and we're gonna get there next week. Next week is Revelation week, so come on back for that. We're gonna... At least there are horses, and should I say it? I think there will be cats. We need something for the harp strings. No, but uh, so yeah, I, I, I think technologically that in Christ's second coming, technologically speaking, the world will see him. But also, you know what? In the moment of his coming, he's Jesus. Could the whole world see him all at the same time from wherever you are? I mean, spiritually speaking, to all of a sudden be able to recognize he's coming on the clouds. Um, are that's a good point, too. I mean, the, the, our, he's coming at, the, at, at Armageddon, and all the armies of all the nations are gathered together at Megiddo, and they're gonna all, they will see him coming on the clouds. I don't know. I don't, I don't wanna be on that. I, I wanna be on the other perspective going, there he goes, come on! <laughs> and you guys are like, shut up, Rick, we're going without you. <laughs> yes? Now, we could actually have The Bible's specific about that, the return of Christ, the actual setting down. And actually what's interesting is he seems to come in phases even with that. That if you read Isaiah, he comes first to Basra, which is 200 miles south of the Valley of Megiddo. And then ultimately he, will, he comes up through Megiddo and then he sets foot on the Mount of Olives, which is in Jerusalem. And it's really interesting that it's, that it's framed that way in the prophetic scriptures because John also talks about how there's gonna be blood up to the horse's bridle from Armageddon, from that return, for 200 miles. Well, it's 200 miles from Basra to Megiddo. And Jesus is gonna come first, Isaiah 6, I believe it is, or 16. Uh, that's, we'll, I'll, I'll look that up. We'll, we'll just add that on. You know, 10 more weeks. Um, he's gonna come first there and then to Megiddo and then he sets foot on the Mount of Olives and it splits and that's Zechariah 14, which is wonderful because then Ezekiel's prophecy of the Jerusalem raised up and the water now is flowing down. Both, it's, it's awesome. So it's not just one spot, but he, he ends up at Jerusalem. Yeah. I would, I would answer that, yeah, so again, this is kind of a little bit of guesswork. I would answer that saying, 
A, they were saved from the wrath of God right then, destroying Nineveh. B, if there were any of those Ninevites who remained in faith in God until they did die, then they would be among the faithful like, like Israel or faithful non-Jewish people who believed in God. You know, everybody before Abraham was a Gentile. Abraham was a Gentile, actually, until he became the father of the nation and then the Hebrew people came out of that and then the Jewish people literally from Judah. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah, I mean, anyone who died in faith literally from Adam and Eve onward, I, I would believe would be saved because the cross is, does that. Did you hear a pin drop? Yes, Jake? Amen, amen, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, again, that's that perspective that we talk about. If I look at it through the lenses of my personal life and say this is all just about me, then I'm not gonna see it clearly. But if I, yeah, did, did y'all hear what he said? The church of this generation has been the most persecuted church in history in 2,000 years. And we're talking about worldwide. We don't see it as much in America because we have really had a blessing for a couple hundred years or so. We're gonna see that going away. I think we already do. But many, many of our brothers and sisters, even tonight, look how comfortable we are being in here talking about these things, sharing this, and there are Christians around the world who couldn't meet like this without being arrested or killed. So this generation of Christians like any generation, that will be raptured if God so chooses. And, and even then, not because they deserve it, but because of his grace. Let's pray one more time. I'll let y'all go. Jesus, I just thank you for the time we've had together tonight to be in your word. We've, we've covered a lot of ground. And again, I pray, Spirit of the living God, would you just make sense of all this as everybody processes it and takes these things home and looks at their notes and thinks it through. We're covering a lot of ground, but not to confuse, Father, but to try to clarify passage by passage, verse by verse, what you have taught and what has been in your word for the last 2,000 years and even further. So I just pray for the clarification of your spirit, revelation and understanding to come from you. And I just pray your blessing on all my brothers and sisters and everyone here tonight in Jesus' name, amen.